Well, I just uh, summarized a bit at the top here. Um, So this time period, I feel like, is best to study uh, individuals, not necessarily um, dates and times and places. Um, But the Reformation is really about individuals. It it is very much about the accomplishment of, uh, of our Lord through individuals. Um, this morning, we're going to concentrate on three of them. We're going to start off with what I call pre-runners uh, to the reformers. It's not a historical term. It's just the best term that I could come up with for these guys. They were really pre-Reformation age, which was, um, you know, most historians are going to agree that it starts with October 31st, 1517. Of course, the famous date when what happened? Come on. What do you do, Brian? <laughs> The thesis on the door. Yeah. Yeah, he started the whole thing. Lit the fire, didn't he? 95 theses, put it on the cathedral door at the, uh, the church in Wittenberg, Germany. We'll talk about that. We're gonna, but, but, but this is the reality of it is Luther really stood on the backs of two other reformers that were before him. Um, and so I want to connect the dots before we get to this. Remember in the previous age, okay, especially the previous two ages, so this is really a buildup of about a thousand years, maybe more like 1,200 years. You have first the Roman Christian church, and we see the church starting to get mixed up in in government, and we see pretty soon the powers that be, um, the popes, and I'm going to provide you a list. I actually have a list of every pope. Um, it is extensive. Um, but the, the Pope starts to confuse his own will with God's will, and that gets wayward. And we know that power and money can be corrupting, and it did. And then we start to see it make its way into imperialism and nationalism, and pretty soon you have popes running nations and city-states. Um, and then you end up in the previous age, which was... Uh, the Christian uh, Empire, or Christian, I'm sorry, Christian Catholicism, um, and uh, medieval, you know, this is the Dark Ages and medieval times, and you have popes, you know, literally running the show. You have, um, it it has become so corrupt and so evil, um, so worldly, is really the best way to say it, so worldly, Popes had the ability to raise money and declare war, hence the Crusades. We start to see this with Ignatius II especially. Um, we start to see heretical practices um, on the backs of what was penance, now into the sale of indulgences, which, was, which I'll really get into this morning. Luther was very, very outspoken against that. Um, and, uh, and it was really just a... Uh, an individual um, who thought he could set his kingdom up on earth. We've been um, studying now for two years, and I'll ask the question here soon, but we've been studying here a little bit um, in our kingdom series now for two years, and I think it helps us. It it certainly helped Wycliffe, Huss, Luther, Calvin, um, many of the other reformers to understand in their eschatology, although not all of them were exactly the same as ours, that the kingdom was not going to be set up at that time. Uh, New Testament is very clear on, on when and how that would be. And so I'll, I'll pause and I'll ask you this question. How should 
knowledge of when and how and where the thousand-year kingdom, how should that affect our thinking now? How did it affect the reformers? Knowing, I mean, why go and protest and why go do what they did knowing that Christ is going to return, take his church to himself and set up thousand-year kingdom on earth? Why go through all that? It's a good question, isn't it? Let's answer it. Let's jump into this. So my, my, my sources are a bit different this morning. There are a few extras. Um, I added Fox's Book of Martyrs, which I brought here this morning. I'll just say this before I get into, if you don't have this book, this is a book that I would advise to be in every library of a believer. Uh, it's not a necessarily a, a, of a front to back, read to, you know, cover to cover book. You can go in there and read about you know, Wycliffe and Luther and us and the reformers' martyrdoms. You can read about countless other men and women and even children. Um, and I'm going to read you some this morning. It's stirring. It's encouraging. It's a great reminder, again, of, of the, those who went before us to protect and preserve God's word and even doctrinal teaching of Christ. So let's jump in. The spirit of reform broke out with a surprising intensity in the 16th century. It had been brewing, but it really broke out um, 16th century. It gave birth to what we now call Protestantism and sharing the papal leadership, I'm sorry, shattering the papal leadership of Western Christendom. Four major traditions marked early Protestantism. They were these, Lutheran, Reform, Anabaptist, and Anglican. Today we're going to hit primarily Reformed and Lutheran. After a generation, the Church of Rome itself, led by the Jesuits, recovered its moral fervor. Bloody struggles between Catholics and Protestants followed, and Europe was ravaged by war before it became obvious that Western Christendom was permanently divided. And a few other pioneers pointed toward a new way, the denominational concept of the church. Let me pause there. Denominationalism replaced nationalism, and I'll, I'll get to that. It, was, it, be, it really became um, as much geographic as it, was, um, as it was doctrinal, but the idea became um, in the, it, that the Christians would have the right to choose who and where they would worship um, on the backs and freedoms that was provided by those who went before them, and I'll, I'll get to that and explain that. We'll develop that later. But denominationalism really replaced nationalism. We see that bear out through reform history. The Church of Popes no longer hurls vehement curses at the Protestants today, and Lutherans no longer burn Catholic books, but the divisions of Christians in Western Christianity remain. It is absolutely clear. Behind today's differences between Catholics and Protestants lie the events of the age of Luther, a period of church history we call the Reformation, and quite frankly, a period of history where we get most of our doctrinal teaching um, that was revived. It was not necessarily brand new then. It was revived, and it was on the backs of Christ and the apostles, which we'll get to. Let's answer some questions. First of all, what is Protestantism? The leading definition is by a theologian named Ernst Trelch. Gotta love these German names that we're gonna hit, German and Dutch names this morning. In the early 20th century, it was defined as modification of Catholicism. 
you're going to see this. Lutheranism, Lutheranism especially, um, it, it is, is, there's still so many semblances of, of Catholicism. And if you grew up where I grew up, you could walk on one side of the street and go to a Lutheran service. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, quite literally, 20, 25 minutes later, you walk across the street and go to a Catholic service and barely know the difference. Hardly know the difference. Um, very interesting. It's a modification of Catholicism in which Catholic, Catholic problems remain, but different solutions were given. Here's what the Reformation did right here, and this is why you and I can sit again in confidence of the health of the church, um, because these questions were answered once again. And I say once again because they were answered previously at the very first class that we studied in here, which was Christ and the apostles. First of all, how's a person saved? Catholics have that twisted and wrong. Where does religious authority lie? Again, the Roman church had that twisted and wrong. What is the church? Again, the Roman church had this twisted and wrong. And what is the essence of Christian living? Reformation re-answers these questions. Four major traditions already, I mentioned this, spawned out of the Reformation, Lutheranism, Reformed, uh, Reformed theology, or Anglican and Anabaptist. Two of the great reformers were really pre-runners to the Reformation. They lived prior to the Reformation, which started in about 1517. These guys are early and late 1300s. Uh, this first one here is absolutely one of my favorite historical figures. Um, next to Jesus Christ, I would maybe want to meet this guy. John Wycliffe, 1320 to 1384. He's an Oxford scholar and English reformer. He denounced the worldliness of the popes and emphasized the spiritual freedom of the righteous man. Uh, Wycliffe's break with the papacy was part of a new idea that he had formed of the church, which he had defined as the whole Number of what? The elect. The elect. Containing only men that shall be saved. It's taken straight from some of his writings. He was absolute in the doctrine of election and also concluded that each man shall be damned, or each man that shall be damned shall be damned by his own guilt. He had it right. He had this doctrine um, accurate. Um, we believe here in the doctrine of election and predestination. Um, so did Wycliffe. Wycliffe concluded that the church is a unity that knows nothing of papal primacies and hierarchies and the sects of monks, friars, and priests, nor can the salvation of the elect be conditioned by the masses, indulgences, penance, or other devices of priestcraft. I love that. Love that. Devices of priestcraft. We could just say devices of men. Um, does that still exist? Absolutely. At the time, Wycliffe challenged a whole range of medieval beliefs, practices, pardons, indulgences, absolutions, absolutions pilgrimages, the worship of images, the adoration of the saints, the treasury and merits laid up in the reserve of the Pope, the distinction between the venial and mortal sins. Guys, he... Anything that was Catholic, pretty much, uh, Wycliffe was like, eh, that ain't right. 
And let me just say this too. So Wycliffe and Huss were very much products of uh, Gregory the Great sort of revival of the universities. Remember when I talked about that? He was a pope who was uh, kind of a scholastic. He was an academic. Did not like, he's, he's one of the men certainly that God used in his time period. And one of the universities that came from the time period was Oxford. And I think it's just very interesting. Many of these universities that are still here like Wartburg and Germany and Oxford and English and many of them were, were orthodox universities. You went there to learn about the creator um, and not so much today. Pretty liberal. Way off the beaten path. Anyways, standard Wycliffe, I'm sorry, Wycliffe retained some of his Catholic beliefs, beliefs such as purgatory. He could never get rid of that one. Extreme unction, we don't have time to get into that. And confession. Although, he does explain that he looked in, the vein, in vain for the Bible of the institution of extreme unction. The reason is because it's not there. The standard of Wycliffe used to judge the Roman church was the teachings of Scripture. Bingo. Here we go. Finally, let's get back to the Word instead of something interpreted through uh, God's you know, uh, conduit to the Pope. Uh, Wycliffe jumped back into the Word in his universities, in his studies. And this is going to be a common theme for you and me here this morning. Neither the testimony of Augustine or Jerome nor any other saint could be accepted except insofar it was based on Scripture. Christ's law is best and enough. And other laws men should not take but as the branches of God's law. Love that statement and why I would like to have met him. Get back to Scripture. Be a Berean. If another man would talk about a law or another man would declare teaching or doctrine, compare it to what? Scripture. Develop the attitude that Paul saw in the Bereans. Remember this? Paul loved to go to Berea and preach. Why? Do you remember? They examined the Scripture. They didn't take what Paul said as, as uh, just all, you know, gospel, although it was, right? Um, they tested it. Wycliffe went even so far in his assertion of the right of every man to examine the Bible for himself. Whoa. I want to pause here. This is groundbreaking. You've got to understand this. There were hardly any Bibles, let alone translations, there, you may have had a major church in um, like where Wycliffe was. And in 200 or 250 or 500 miles, there may have been another Bible somewhere in that radius. And it's not an exaggeration. There, there may have been manuscripts, portions of the New Testament or portions of the Old Testament that were in that locale, but it was not common. This is groundbreaking. This is, this is astounding. When Wycliffe says, every man ought to have the right to examine his Bible. Now, I could ask this much easier. Who didn't bring at least one copy of the Bible this morning? I think I have three or four just this morning. Three of them on my phone. One that sits in my backpack over by Mark. 
Think about that. What you have now and how uncommon and fought for it was. Let's keep going. Wycliffe was most vehement against the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. I'll tell you what that was and still is. Catholics believe that the that communion at the Lord's Supper, that, that the elements, that the wine and the bread actually transform, actually transform into uh, the flesh of Christ. In the summer of 1380, he published 12 arguments against the idea of the bread and wine of Holy Communion were transformed into the physical body and blood of Christ. Um, this is also why, you know, some of the early Catholics were described as cannibalistic. They're, that's what some of the pagan people in the area thought. Like, hey, you guys practice pretty often just the transubstantiation of bread and wine into the body of Christ. It's not accurate. He asserts that the early church held that, that the consecrated elements of the wine were efficacious symbols of Christ's body and blood. Hence, Christ is present in the elements sacramentally, not materially, not physically, not actually. Wycliffe was eventually silenced at Oxford, Oxford and declared a heretic. Surprise, surprise. Despite the accusers, though, Wycliffe was able to preach and teach across cottages, towns, villages of England. His most important life's work was to lead a handful of scholars at Oxford in this. This is why we have what we have in our laps the translation of the Latin Bible into what? English. Praise God. And copied the methods of St. Francis and the Friars. Let me, let me talk about this. So part of the accuracy and the preservation of Scripture um, that is overseen by God was that these people had a practice when they transcribed the manuscripts or transcribed the Bibles, they literally counted consonants. They literally counted how many T's, how many S's, how many whatever are on this page, every single page before a new one was written to make sure of the accuracy. How would you like that job? I mean, I have a hard enough time making it through my daily reading, let alone counting consonants on the page. Thank the Lord for these men who did hours upon hours of ensuring the accuracy that we enjoy today. Wycliffe's work carried across England, um, but found even further expansion in Bohemia. Many of us who sit here today probably have ancestors, relatives from this part of the world. Um, I don't look like I do because of the, the same thing. That's where they're from. Uh, Wycliffe's poor priests soon became a power in their land, and the enemies dubbed them lollards, which meant mumblers, because they quietly went from town to town and spoke the gospel and preached and taught doctrinal truths like election. They carried a few pages of the Reformer's Bible and his tracts and sermons as they went throughout the countryside preaching the word of God. Wycliffe gained enough support that the church authorities had the good sense not to move against him. That's how prominent it had become. And now we're talking 1320s, 1350, I'm sorry, 1350s, 1360s. Not even close to 1517 yet. And um, anyway, his followers were hunted down, though expelled from Oxford and forced to renounce their views. Wycliffe was able to live out his days peacefully at his parish in Lutterworth, but he died there in 1384. I want to read about his death real quick, and you can read this if you wanted to buy this copy. 
uh, John Fox's Book of Martyrs. So Wycliffe was allowed, you know, uh, by the way, this is interesting. Uh, in my studies this week, the same word, the same Greek word used for appointed one death, appointed, the word appointed, every man is appointed a death. You know this, right? We are predetermined our death, and that's, in, 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 you know, in a lot of ways is comforting, is the same word appointed rulers, appointed rulers, the same thing, determined your death, God determined appointed Rulers, totally off track. Um, Wycliffe, as Fox spells it, W-I-C-K-L-I-F-F-E, love the old English. I'll read this to you. You'll like this. So Wycliffe died a natural death, okay, but he was not treated as, um, as such. Wycliffe had some cause to give them thanks that they would at least spare him until he was dead. And also give him so long respite after his death, 41 years to rest, he's been in the grave, in his sepulcher before they ungraved him and turned him from earth to ashes, which also they took and threw into the river. And so he was resolved into three elements, earth, fire, and water, thinking thereby utterly to extinguish and abolish both the name and the doctrine of Wycliffe forever. Not much unlike the example of the old Pharisees and the sepulchral knights who, when they had brought the Lord into the grave, thought to make him sure to never rise again. But these and all others must know that as there is no counsel against the Lord, so there is no keeping down of verity, but it will spring up and come out of dust and ashes as appeared right well in this man. For though they dug up his body, burned his bones, and drowned his ashes, yet the word of God and the truth of his doctrine with the fruit and success thereof, they could not burn. I, I love the way the old English reads. Um, but Wycliffe, one of the church reformers and fathers, was allowed to lay rest in his grave, in his tomb, for 41 years before uh, that apparently was too much to bear for the Catholics who dug him up, uh, burned his bones again, and then scattered the ashes in the river. What a great story. Uh, Huss, let's talk about this guy, John Huss, he's a Czech reformer, he viewed Christ not as the Pope, but as the head of, or, sorry, he viewed Christ, not the Pope, as the head of the church, that sounds familiar, born to a peasant, parents in southern Bohemia in a small town called Husenitz, he studied theology at the University of Prague, earning a Bachelor of Arts, and then a Master of Arts, before beginning his teachings, before beginning his teaching in the Faculty of Arts and plunging into the Reform cause. He studied Wycliffe's writings as a student. He adopted his view of the church as the elect, so he adopts this, this same doctrine with Christ, not the Pope, as its true head. At Bethlehem Chapel near Huss's University, he was able to see the difference between the Pope and Christ's artistic paintings on the walls and cathedral ceilings. The Pope, rode a horse, whereas Christ walked barefoot. Jesus washed his disciples' feet, whereas the Pope preferred to have them kissed. Slight difference. Came to serve, not what? Be served. Be served. Pope? Not so much. The Archbishop of Prague complained to the Pope about the spread of Wycliffe's doctrines. He declares, root out heresy replies the Pope. So Archbishop Zibnik 
excommunicated Huss, resulting in a great popular uprising. Huss openly attacked the Pope's sale of indulgences for support of his war in Naples. Um, this was a famous Pope. I'm not going to get into there, but, but he had a rival, um, really just in terms of wealth, um, wealth and land. It was, a, it, was a, um, it was where he wanted to install his son as a ruler, and so why wouldn't you just, just get rid of him, right? How do you, you know, do that? You've got to finance it. So sell some people. You guys will get a kick out of this. Um, sell some people indulgences. So he raises money for his war uh, in Naples. Eventually, Huss fled to exile and wrote his major work called On the Church. Huss was caught as a result of an inquisition where he was forced to renounce his errors or be burned at the stake. He was accused of additional heresies that he didn't teach. Um, they made up stuff that he said, which he didn't. Huss exclaimed, I should, have said that I, I should have said that I would not, for a chapel full of gold received the truth. I know... He wrote in 1412 that truth stands as and is mighty forever, abides eternally with whom there is no respect for persons. I, this is a complete shot at the Pope here, by the way, the, the treasuries of gold or chapels of gold. <clears throat> he letters, his letters rank among the greatest in Christian literature. He wrote one of his prayers, and I, I quoted this for you, it's on your notes. O most holy Christ, draw me weak as I am after thyself, for if... Thou dost not draw us, we cannot follow thee. Strengthen my spirit that it may be willing if the flesh is weak. Let thy grace precede us. Come between and follow, for without thee we cannot go for thy sake to cruel death. Give me a fearless heart, a right faith, a firm hope, a perfect love that for thy sake I may lay down my life with patience and joy. Amen. Huss was burnt at the stake in July 6th. 1415. Let me read about his. <clears throat> Fox writes about Huss's death. This is famous. Uh, it was witnessed by thousands who gathered there. Uh, Protestantism at this time was vast across Bavaria, as I had read before. And, and so this was a well-viewed um, and written about martyrdom. In going to the place of his execution, he sang several hymns. Think about that. Let's just sing on my way to death. And when he came to the spot, which was the, which was the same where Huss had been burnt, he knelt down and he prayed fervently. He embraced the stake. He hugged the stake with great cheerfulness. And when they, and when they went behind him to set fire to the faggots, he said, Come here and kindle it before my eyes. For if I had been afraid of it, I had not come to this place. The fire being kindled, he sang a hymn, but was soon interrupted by the flames. In the last words, he was heard to say these, This soul in flames I offer to Christ. Amen. Um, great bravery. Told the guys who were going to burn him at the stake, Don't light the fire behind me. I'm not scared. Light it right in front of my eyes. <clears throat> There's faith. So those are the two pre-runners to the, ref the reform age, the two reformers. Let's talk about Luther. Luther, first of all, was very Hussian. Uh, Luther based much of his teaching in his own studies. He studied Wycliffe, but he very much um, came from the same area. 
very much understood um, on the back of whom he stood, which was Huss and some others. But we know Luther. <clears throat> Luther was born in 1483. He died in 1546, pretty good age. He was the son of a Saxon miner. Luther had every intention of practicing law until one day in 1505, this is a true story, he was caught in a thunderstorm walking to the village of Studerheim. A bolt of lightning knocked him to the ground and Luther, terrified, exclaimed, St. Anne, save me. Of course, she can't. But he said, St. Anne, save me and I'll become a monk. Well, much to his parents' dismay, he fulfilled the vow becomes a monk. Luther became a fanatical monastic. This is just crazy stuff here. I could have put so much in here from his own journals and um, he took monasticism to, uh, to, the, to the nth degree. He pushed his body to things like this, like health cracking rigors of punishment for fasting for three days and then going and out sleeping outside in the freezing winter with no blanket. You know, it, this is what legalism can lead to. Let me just pause for a second. This is what legalism or works-based, you know, things can, can lead to. I read in Scripture not to be downtrodden and sick and sad over your sin, but to repent and move on. Therefore, forgetting the things of the past, I do what? Go forward. That for the upward cause of Christ. Um, and then later on, I rejoice again what? I say rejoice. Or in the Gospel of Matthew, you know, my burden is what? Easy. And my yoke is what? I, say, I got it backward. I'm sorry. My burden is light and my yoke is easy. The, Luther and other monastics didn't see that. There was not illuminated to them. And so they punished themselves and in some of them, just in weird and bizarre um, manners. Luther was a fanatic about it. One of his writings recounts when asked to lead a mass, and, and I appreciate this submissiveness, but where's the joy? He writes in, his, in, his, uh, in one of his journals, he says, I, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. So he was asked by the archbishop to lead a mass. And so this is his response, okay? He says, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin. And I'm speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. No amount of advice or encouragement from his colleagues could relieve Luther of his convictions that he was a miserable, doomed sinner. And this was his attitude. This was from his very writing. I don't love God, I hate him. He felt the oppression of God's demand for holiness, you know, demand for repentance. Instead of understanding, he separates the sin as far as what? The east is from the west, and so he bore this burden and heaviness, and thank the Lord he's, re he's relieved of this soon. But here's a good example of some people even today who are like, you know what, I carry this sin around, you know, God can't forgive me, right? My sin is too great, I was too bad in my early 20s or whatever. Well, you know what, the Lord says, ask for forgiveness and he's faithful to do what? Forgive every 
time on the basis of the work of Christ. So Luther didn't get that. He does eventually, so let's get there. Eventually, Luther found the love and joy of a believer through the study of what? Scriptures. Key. I want you to see this. This is why these men revolted and reformed. It was on the basis of Scripture. It was on the truth and correction of Scripture. Wycliffe, Huss, uh, Luther, uh, Zwingli, Rogers, many others on the basis of Scripture. And they're protesting what was being commanded of them by the government and the leaders of the time, which was the Catholic Church. Finally, here, he comes to some light. His study of the scripture was assigned to the chair of biblical studies at the newly established Wittenberg University. He became fascinated with the words of Christ from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And his thoughts were these. Christ forsaken? How could our Lord be forsaken? Luther felt forsaken. He felt destitute with his sin. But he was a sinner, whereas Christ was not. So he sees the comparison. He starts to see the comparison here. And, and Luther realized the answer had to lie within Christ's holy identity compared to sinful humanity. Finally starts to see the hope is not in my penance. The hope is not in my monasticism or my infliction on myself, but it is in the work and completion of Christ. Finally, he's free of that. In 1515, while pondering Paul's epistle to the Romans, this is so famous, Luther came across these words. You know this, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In other words, from man to man, woman to woman, who has faith, those who have faith. Hebrews 13, the hall of faith, those who walked in faith before him, from faith to faith. It is written, the righteous shall live by what? By faith. By faith. And he is free from this burden, free from this. That's what happened for you and me. That's what happened for you and me when we became, you know, to a saving faith and knowledge um, of our own sin compared to the perfection of Christ, to, you know, and the forgiveness of Christ. Here's what he writes later. His writings take a major shift. Here he was key to, or, I'm sorry, here was his key to spiritual certainty. Luther later wrote, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. I grasped that the justice of God is that the righteousness by which through sheer grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. Upon, or thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. What a shift. What a, what a major burden relieved for this man. Luther saw it clearly now. Man is to be saved only by his faith and the merit of Christ's sacrifice. He now sharply clashed with the Roman church's doctrine of justification by faith and good works. The demonstration of faith through virtuous acts acceptance of church dogma and participation in church ritual. Luther wrote, good works do not make a man good, but a good man does good works. Simple. James writes similarly, show me your faith and I'll show you what? My works. They work together. A man is regenerated and we know this. Rod uses this example all the time, but it's true. 
A man is no longer a thief when he's starting to work with his hands, when he's working, right? When he's regenerated and he's, he's, uh, he's surpassed that sin. <clears throat> we know that he's reborn by his, by his works, not saved by his works, demonstrated out of love to Christ is why we work and serve. Luther went on to attack the papal authority especially the sale of indulgences. Let me pause. Indulgences were this. Do X, Y, Z, pay this much money, and the Pope would absolve you from sin. The Pope would say, go in peace, brother. You are now free from this sin. How heretical, how arrogant um, is that claiming to be able to do the work of Christ. That is, and I, that scares me, quite frankly. That, that actually sends chills down my spine. Um, Luther saw, thankfully saw the, the error here. He felt that the demonstration of faith through virtuous acts, that the church, the dogma, the participation in, in ritual and so forth was, was heretical. Luther went on attack against the papal authority, especially the sale of indulgences, introducing the church to the Crusades, which made a major source of the papal income. The church offered the sinner exemption from his acts of penance by drawing upon its treasury of merits. Sorrow, by the way, uh, Paul writes very, very distinctly on this, that works that do not withstand the evaluation The wood, hay, and stubble get done. What happens to these? They're burned up. There are works that stand the test of time, sharing the gospel with others. Are we gospel-minded? Are we gospel-centered? Are we thoughtful about sharing the word of God as Luther did? Those are named as precious what? Stone, precious jewel that withstand what? The test of fire. Okay, Luther believed that. The Dominican John Tetzel, this is just, this is priceless here, pardon the pun. The Dominican John Tetzel was preaching through Germany on a fundraising campaign for the Pope to complete the construction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Uh, That's there. That is, St. Peter's Basilica is still there. It is an empty tomb uh, that tourists go see. Um, It's... It's a, it's a monument of, of heresy. His slogan was this. Listen to this. John Tetzel. As soon as the co- coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Wow. October 31st, 1517. Here it is, Brian. Luther promptly drew up his famous 95 propositions or theses, posts them on the castle door at the Wittenberg uh, church, and he's sparking the Reformation. Luther was immediately denounced by Rome. He began insisting on scriptural proof that he was wrong, even questioned the papal authority over purgatory. Let me pause for a second. He insisted that the pope or his bishops or whoever prove him wrong on the basis of what? Scripture, this is where we test ourselves. This is where Huss tested himself. This is where Wycliffe tested. This is where, where the reformers tested the authorities. 
Prove me wrong on the basis of scripture. If you want to align yourself with something, align it with what? Scripture. If it is contrary to it, don't align yourself. Run from it. During an 18-day debate, how about that? Seriously. 18 days of debate in 1519 with theologian John Eck at Leipzig, Luther blurts out this, a council may sometimes err, neither the church nor the pope can establish articles of faith. Amen to that. There must come from what? Scripture. Come from Scripture. Thus, Luther had moved from his first conviction that salvation was by faith in Christ alone to another conviction that Scriptures, not popes or councils, are the standard for Christian behavior. Or as Wycliffe put it, priestcraft. Additionally, Luther could not find no justification—sorry, could find no justification for five of the Roman Catholic sacraments. I, I didn't name them all here. We don't have time for that. He retained only baptism and communion. Now, sadly, he didn't get his baptismal doctrine correct. We'll get to that. Um, and he he was. <coughs> He was probably a little inaccurate on the communion, but he replaced these things within the community of believing Christians rather than in the hands of the priesthood. Luther is condemned as a heretic. Surprise, surprise. 1520, Pope Leo X issued a bull. I love this, though. I I wish my writings were called bulls. That's the only thing cool about, about this. They're not called that. Pope Leo X issues his bull, which was just a writing condemning Luther and giving him 60 days to turn in his heretical course. Before the Diet of Worms, this was a whole dieting time, by the way. You think we diet a lot in 2023? Dieting was an assembly. It was a hearing. Um, it, it, a diet was just simply, let's gather you know, the powers that be to hear about Luther, or to hear about Huss, or to hear about these things. So it was called a diet. I, don't, I guess it's another meaning of diet. We have a different one now. A diet of worms, uh, which is a place, worms in Germany. There's also a place in Nebraska. Luther exclaimed once again that the only biblical authority would sway him. He says this, My conscience is captive to the word of God. I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither honest nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Charles V declares Luther an outlaw. Things really snowball here. However, Luther was saved from his arrest by the Prince of Saxony. Just this stuff you can't make up, guys. This is, this is God at work. His mysteries, his wonders to perform. I love this. Uh, Prince of Saxony, Duke Ferdinand, Frederick the Wise, whose domain included Wittenberg, who was newly the prince of this area, basically frees Luther. The Duke gave Luther sanctuary at his lonely Wartburg Castle, during his time at Wartburg Castle, he meets Junker George, another reformer who stayed for nearly a year. And what do they do there? What does a godly man do? He gets into scripture. What does he do? He translates the New Testament into German in about a year. This was a major step toward reshaping public and private worship in Germany. Major. Meanwhile, the revolt against Rome spread. New reformers far more radical than Luther began to pop up. By the way, I want, you to, I want to connect this again to the kingdom. So one of the offshoots, and I, I cannot remember this guy's name, but in my studies this week, 
Um, so the Pope was really an essential guy who thought he could set up his kingdom on earth. We see this. There's another offshoot from the Pope who somewhere in Bavaria thought that he would set up his thousand-year reign in Bavaria. His thousand-year reign in Bavaria. Thankfully, that went about a couple months. Um, but it's these men who are seeing forward, though, just more to the point that they're seeing forward that in Scripture, we are told Christ, as sure as he came the first time, will come again to set up his kingdom. Their eschatology was not always good, okay? But just more to the point that today, 2023, we can have an understanding and a peace on whatever is happening God's in control. He appoints his man. Anyways, let's talk about some other reforms that Luther did. Meanwhile, the revolt against Rome spread. New reformers far more radical than Luther began to pop up. Luther concentrated his efforts in educating churches and pastors. Good for him. He felt churches needed to be equipping pastors, not dignitaries. He also thought that monks and nuns should be allowed to marry he figured out that it's not good for a man to be what? Alone. He married a former nun, Catherine von Bora, in 1525, and I love this writing. He wrote, there is a lot to get used to in the first year of marriage. You, you gotta love Luther's candor. You just gotta love this. One wakes up in the morning and finds a pair of pigtails on the pillow, which were not there before. Amen. Luther also helped change the whole emphasis of sacrificial mass to the preaching and teaching of God's word. Good for him. Sadly, Luther's teaching on spiritual equality found its way into social equality. Again, we get sidetracked into social equity and social ideas or governmental ideas, and here's what happens. Very quickly, just within months, peasant serfs began to revolt against the landlords and princes. So remember last time uh, in the previous period I talked to you about an institution called feudalism had begun, which was... We want to sort of separate ourselves as much as we can from papal rules. So you had wealthier landlords or, or people, uh, larger land estates and so forth who were successful would invite in indentured servants, essentially. And they would care for them, pay them. Oftentimes, some were cruel, some were not. Um, but this, there was a peasant class. There was not a middle class. There was a, there was a wealthy, a nobility class. And then there was a serf class, a serfdom class. Um, there's a great book called The Rise of the Serfs that's written in this time period. If you want to fall asleep very quickly, go get that book. Um, but this, this is uh, some of the reading that I had to do on this time period, which I love, but it's hard to read sometimes. So what happens here is this. I'm going to summarize this for you. Peasant serfs began to revolt against landlords and princes. They stole Luther's idea of equality, of spiritual equality. And we are. Uh, scripture is very clear. It says there is neither Gentile nor what? Nor Jew. They were equals in the eyes of, of God. They're saved on the same basis. They're redeemed on the same basis. But the serfs saw that as in the world, there's no authority. There's no, there we are also on the same basis. That's not scriptural. Luther goes on here, I'm sorry, serfs go, presents and serfs go on here to revolt against landlords and princes. Luther called on princes to, and this is in his writings, he says, knock down 
strangle and stab. I think that's a bit extensive, but anyways, he says this. And think nothing so venomous, pernicious, or satanic as an insurgent. In 1525, princes and nobles crushed a revolt, killing an estimated 100,000 peasant lives, resulting in many peasants peasants to do this. Renounced Luther as a false prophet. What else did they do? Many returned to Catholicism or more radical forms of reformation. Again, as soon as we, they got sidetracked into a social reform as opposed to a spiritual reform, calamity. Luther's conservative political and economic views arose from his belief that the equality of all men before God applied to spiritual, not secular matters due to God's sovereign authority to appoint rulers. Now, there's another man, another reformer, soon after this, where we get an awful lot of our theology, John Calvin. Have you heard of him? John Calvin's major teaching, like Luther's was faith alone, okay? Salvation is through faith alone and in the true Word is ought to be ought to be the defining uh, definer of authority and and church and so forth. Calvin preached the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God. He's you know he he's famous for his five points of Calvinism. I'll get into this next week, Lord willing. But but let me just help you here as we build into that. Luther understood accurately that God applied spiritual. Equality, um, not social. Luther's conservative views here, I'm sorry, I lost my spot. Consequently, political rulers allied themselves with Luther. Well, why not? It became the majority of the time, much like Constantine. It's very debatable. Did he use Christianity to further his, you know, his empire? Or did Christianity truly govern his life? Um, that's much the case here with many of the Protestant Lutherans who came after Luther. I should say Protestant Lutheran politicians or leaders, princes. In 1530, Charles V was one of them. He made it clear that he would crush opposing Protestant heresy and drafted the Peace of Augsburg in 1555, which allowed each prince to decide the religion of his subjects, but it did this. You get to decide your religion. However, we're just going to forbid all sects of Protestantism other than Lutheranism. Come on. Do you see the irony here? Do you see the problem? You got religious freedom, but it has to be Lutheranism. And ordered all Catholic and bishops to give up their property if they turn Lutheran. Here we see some steps back into Catholicism. The effects of these provisions were profound. Lutheranism became a state religion in large portions of the empire and from Germany, and Lutheranism spread to Scandinavia. I think it's really interesting. You go there, and I have friends who um, I, I actually coach with um, from Sweden, and it's like 97% Lutheran. I mean, if you talk to them, everybody's Lutheran, but nobody's a believer. There's, there's very little faith and trust in Scripture, which is what Luther preached. And, of course, then you have regenerative baptism, and the question is, for us, are you saved? Are you born again? Are you, you know, have you come to a saving faith and knowledge? And for a Lutheran or some other regenerative, baptism, bap, regenerative Baptist teaching denominations, it's, are you baptized? Wrong question. Ask the thief on the cross if he was baptized. Luther's greatest achievements were not political, but they were religious. They took the four basic Catholic concerns and offered invigorating new answers yet that we have today. Number one, how is a person saved? How is he saved? 
Not by works, but by what? Faith alone. Where does religious authority lie? Not in the visible institution called the Roman Catholic Church, but in what? The Word of God found in the Bible. What is the church? It's the whole community of Christian believers. It's the elect, since all priests are before God, or since all are priests before God. This is clear in Scripture. I think Pastor I pointed that out last week when we were in Colossians. Appointed a priesthood. Remember that in Hebrews? Of, of whom our chief priest is whom? Right? We have a sympathetic priest, right? Our chief priest is Jesus Christ. What is the essence of Christian living? Serving God in any useful calling, whether ordained or lay. To this day, a classical description of Protestantism must echo these central truths. Well, next week, we'll get into three more reformers. Two for sure, maybe three. Um, I'll read a little bit about Luther's... I'm going to get here in a second. I'll read a little bit next week about Luther's martyrdom um, uh, from Fox. And then uh, we'll, we'll study one of my favorite guys in, in history also, in church history, John Rogers. You've heard of the Rogers Bible? One of the most impactful like little sermonettes or sort of that I've heard in my entire life was one year um, when I was at Countryside in South Lake, a man came with a Bible collection. And he's an owner, and I don't remember of... Uh, the, the business, but he has a, his business he used to acquire like actual Bob Bibles. He had a Rogers Bible and he brought it to church and there were a number of others that, and he, he talked a little bit about the church fathers and those who lived and died for the preservation of scripture and then had some of the original, but it was, it really came alive for me. It was like, my goodness, um, I've had nothing to worry about in terms of persecution and here on some of these bibles are literally blood like literally um just amazing let's close in prayer our god and our father we thank you for how you have raised up christian men and women in every age we pray now for our own encouragement that we would stand on the backs of those who went before us who were brave in their faith great defenders of faith and yet humble in their service um, a great understanding of where we stand in light of the perfection of Christ. It's in his perfect and holy name we pray. Amen.